Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Good morning. Thanks for showing up online, in person. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work sometimes. We came back from a, we had a late night wedding of a massive awesome testimony of God's faithfulness. I wish I could tell you more of that story, but we're driving in and we hit Eldon at about midnight. Our van flutters a couple times. I thought, oh Lord, please, if you've ever been faithful in my life, please be faithful. I'm tired. I got an early morning. Let us get home. And so uh, we have had a full weekend and just starting and kicking off another great week. And so just excited to be back home and with our church family. And I hope you guys can join us again Christmas Eve service uh, as we celebrate that together. Uh, and that'll be online too. So I know some people have uh, family coming in and said, hey, it's going to be kind of a, a rush and real difficult to try to make it in person. Gather them around the TV and duct tape all their mouths shut and say, you're going to church and join us. And so just want you to invite you to that. Um, and also then, again, the reminder, the 26th, that just the one service, 1045, if you came in later on announcements next week, one service, 1045, we'll be going live on that as well. So we are uh, second week into our sermon series talking about unexpected, kingdom living in an earthly reality. And so last week we talked about this unexpected humility. You know, and as we understand who Jesus is, what he's called us to do, well, that's quite unexpected. You know, because they had an idea of what kingdom living looked like. They lived in the kingdom of Rome. They understood the do's and the don'ts of what it meant to be uh, in occupying in the empire of Rome, the Roman Empire. But now Jesus shows up on the scene and he, the king in his kingdom, now starts showing what does it mean to live as a kingdom citizen? And it's just quite unexpected. And that's what I love. And one of the things about us as a church is we just walk through book by book, verse by verse. And so if you're kind of fairly new to the Calvary Lake Ozark family and you're probably wondering like, what's up with, why is he always in Matthew? Is that book better than the rest of them? And like, what is going on here? And that's just kind of our distinctive. That's our style. And, and I don't try to manipulate like, oh, okay, this is coming up, or I know this is in somebody's life, and so I'm going to preach about that, and we're just going to open up the word. And what I love is there's many times what I have found going on in maybe my own life, maybe you found in your life, maybe even in our world that the word of God addresses what's going on. And so as I was preparing this week and looking at this, knowing that we were going with an unexpected forgiveness, the week of Christmas, the week that we're gonna walk into homes and with families and have get-togethers and knowing that sometimes those are a little bit anxiety-producing that sometimes those get-togethers can be a little bit on edge because maybe not a full-blown-out, like, war with some family member, but there might be a little bit of an estrangement with a mom or a dad, and even as an adult having that. Or maybe it's a sibling that's like, ah, 
mm, they're going to be there, and I really wish they wouldn't make it. Hopefully their car breaks down in Eldon, or, you know. And, and it can be big issues like that, and sometimes it can just even be small things. Obviously, the stress of the holidays, we go up and, and we, you know, we get less uh, sleep, and we're eating a whole lot of junk food, which is sometimes not always the best for our bodies, and we can just get real cranky at times because our world's turned upside down and we can get real short with the ones that we love and, and wouldn't it be kind of funny that we have to talk about forgiveness walking into the week of Christmas. And so Jesus is speaking, we're jumping right into kind of a, a teaching moment that he's having. Matthew 18 is uh, kind of labeled, how are you supposed to do church discipline? Like, oh yeah, that's real good right before Christmas. But Jesus starts, or I'm starting in verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Obviously very unfavored in this culture. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, because Peter was never short of having a few words to say into a situation. He walks up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And he gives this parable, gives the story to teach and drive home the point. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, 
his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. These are some harsh words. Way to bring in the Christmas cheer. My heavenly Father will do unto you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what do we do when we're wronged? We actually have options. We have options. It's not just, okay, I gotta forgive everybody because I'm a Christian, and uh, obviously that's not really not a uh, from the heart type of mentality, but we do have options. And let's cover a couple of those. So what do we do when we're wrong? Ephesians 4, 2, Romans 15, 1 to 2, Galatians 2, all talk about the same concept of what we can do if we're wrong. It says bear with one another. So we bear with one another in our failings. Anybody perfect in here? Put your hand down. We bear with one another in our failings. We bear with one another in our burdens. We bear one another in our faults. We have options here. And even uh, go to 1 Corinthians. I was just at a wedding. And so uh, obviously these verses were known to be read at a wedding a lot of times, but I think they also need to be lived out in everyday life, not just read at a wedding. But 1 Corinthians 13, we know love is patient, love is kind. The fun thing to do is to take the word love out and put your name in there. Nick is patient and kind. Nick does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Nick does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Nick bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Man, when you read it like that, it's a little more convicting. But we're called to be and to show the love of Christ to the world. And so we have options. What's something that we could do when we are wronged? And all of us that have small kids and that wonderful winter movie that gets played a lot at my house and the songs that we sing, thank you to the makers of Frozen. Let it go. If I was vocal, I would sing it, but you really don't want that. I promise you, you don't want that. What's Andy say? Uh, Coyote and a trash compactor is my vocal ability. So if you're looking for that, I'm your man. But we can just let it go. That yes, we're gonna be wronged. That there's gonna be things that happen against us. That people are gonna say or do something that is not well received. We just let it go. And that's hard sometimes, because we don't want to. And sometimes that is the best option. But I don't want to. I want to stand and I want to fight and I want to yell back and I want to get even. I don't even want to get even. I want to win. And sometimes we start making a game out of something that should have never been a game. But if we can't let it go, if we cannot let the issue with our brother go, then we need to go to our brother with the issue is what Jesus is saying. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults. So he says, go to your brother. Go to the one that wronged you, not to your friends, not to the gossip train, not to, no, go to your brother 
who has wronged you and tell him his fault. So if you can't let this issue go, if it's just boiling too much in you and don't you know what they said to me and I can't remember, go to your brother with the issue. And that's hard. I don't want to have that as an awkward conversation because I'm still mad about it. And I don't want reconciliation. I want vengeance. And I love that line, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we just want to be about the Lord's business, don't we? And we just want to store up. We love those verses where God is storing up wrath. Be like, ooh, I can do that really well. Just trying to be like the Lord. No, no, no. So if we can't let it go, we go and tell our brother, we tell him his fault between you and him alone. And that's hard because we want to, we kind of want to bring some people into the mix a little bit. We want to make it a little bit known because that'll add a little bit more shame, a little bit more guilt, a little bit more power to our arguments. And sometimes we don't even want reconciliation and restoration. We just want to make it a big deal. And we just want to talk about our heart and our hurt and our pain. We want people to sympathize with us. And, and really, we become center focused on that, that we want people to feel sorry for us and we become the kings of our own little kingdoms. But if Jesus is our king and we're gonna have kingdom living in this earthly reality, we go to our brother. And so when there is issues, if there are personal issues are handled properly, because we're, we're gonna, we're broken, we're messed up. I mean, look at us. Did you look in the mirror this morning and think, the world is blessed to have me. No, we're not. But here we are together, you know? And some of that, it's your own family. You look in there and think, wow, really? We're gonna have issues. Things are gonna happen. But if we handle them properly, if we handle them biblically, they'll never be made known publicly. And my wife is way better at this than me. She had... Uh, we lived in South Kansas City for a little bit, and she was a young mom, and if, like, uh, if, if you've been a young mom or are a young mom, the one thing that you want is just to get out. You just want to get away. You don't want to do laundry anymore. You don't want to feel like a mom. You want to feel like a lady. You, wanna just, you just want to connect with people. Like, I would come home from work, and my wife would look at me. She said, I've been talking to a three-year-old all a day. Just talk to me, please. And then she would say, don't touch me, though because I've had a three-year-old climbing on me all day, and I'm out-touched. And so my wife would she, would, she would group up with other moms like this so they didn't go insane. And they would go to the park, and, they, and it was their, we called it her playdate girls, right? They'd have a little playdate. And they thought, oh, we'll get the kids together. No, it was the moms that would get together. And it was like a little recovery program, like just encourage each other, like, hey, don't leave them on the side of the highway. They really will be good kids one day hang in there, you're doing a great job, and they would encourage one another. And then a couple more things would happen in that little circle of ladies. And I'm just saying how it is, okay, ladies? I'm not throwing guilt or blame or saying anything. Us guys aren't really a whole lot to holler at either. But in this group of ladies, uh, they love to talk about the shortcomings of their husbands. We got a couple giggles, so we know where we're going here. We understand the context. And they, they, week in, week out, they just kind of, that was normal talk. Oh, you know what my old man did, and you know what, I don't even know if we say old man anymore, but I'm going with it. 
And we would talk about it. They would frustrate because sometimes it's just nice to connect that my family is not the only crazy one out there, that your spouse is just as crazy as my spouse. And, and we disguise it under that a little bit. When in reality, it's gossip. And that, when you say it like that, it kind of stings a little bit. And then eventually they kind of got uh, to the point where they figured out, they're like, hold on. Ashley, you never complain about your husband. Because there's nothing to complain about. <laughs> she is blessed by the Lord. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing at that. But they really did. They said, Ashley, you never complain about Nick. Is he just perfect? Yes. She said, oh, no. <laughs> He's far from perfect. But I'll discuss that with him, not you. One of the greatest things my wife has ever done is to protect my honor. Because we'd get together as families with these families and I would know and hear these horrible guys of husbands and he just wanted to kick them and slap them and I figured out, oh yeah, I'm just as bad. I just know their faults and they don't know mine. But I was like the knight in shining armor of the group, not because I'm perfect, because my wife honored me. She said, no, he's not perfect, but I'll discuss that with him, not with you guys. And it's the same thing that Jesus is saying. When we go to our brother alone when we have an issue, we're honoring them. We're not smearing their name in front of others. We're honoring the Lord in doing that because the brother that we have an issue with is created in the image of God. And as we're honoring God and we're honoring our brother, we're being honored because we're doing it according to God's standards. And the Lord said, yeah, you're gonna have some issues, but this is how I want you to address them. And that's hard. It's not easy. It's not easy living for Jesus. If it was, we'd all be doing it. And it'd be, it'd be great and wonderful, but it's hard. But it's right, and it's worth it. And so whatever the issue, whatever the situation, Please have the heart that the goal is always reconciliation. The goal is always restoration, not to win the argument. And I, I'm really good about that. Ask my kids and my wife. They don't like to argue with me because I have a PhD in winning arguments. I'm training my son. He's going to be a great lawyer if I can get him convinced to do it. This is how you win arguments. And you can be right, you can win the argument, or you can have reconciliation. And when I put it in that line, I can win the argument with my wife, I could win the argument with my son or my daughters, I could win the argument with my parents or with my brother, I can win those arguments, or I can gain my brother, gain my wife, gain my son. And so we have to ask, whatever the situation it is, and I know what I'm saying right now. Nick, you don't know my situation. In any situation, any struggle, any issue that we're having, it should be our goal. And I know there might be a mountain of issues and a lot of brokenness in our families. But the goal needs to be reconciliation and restoration in them. And I know if we're going to address it, it's going to, sometimes we take these emotions and these feelings and we pack them away and we don't want to bring them out again and we've kind of numbed them and we've, and we've almost ignored them. And if we have to address it, that means I got to bring it into the light, 
but the greatest thing that we could do with it is bring it into the light. Is it gonna hurt? Yes, it should. That means you love the person. It's really easy to be mean to somebody I don't love, and it really doesn't affect me. But it is gonna hurt, but that's also an evidence that you love that person. That's an evidence that they love you, that it's an evidence that this really does matter, because if it didn't matter, it wouldn't hurt. And so the goal is reconciliation, not just in little things, even though that is a part of it. Some of you guys might have great homes and great families and just a little low-level stress of being the holidays is what's gonna make you guys kind of nitpick at each other, but even in little things, but in all things, this is our goal. So what if he refuses though? What if you have this issue and you're gonna go to the, maybe it really is your brother or it's a parent or it's someone, but what if they refuse? What do I do? What do I do if they refuse? And, and obviously Jesus is talking about us as in, in kingdom living together. This is how we operate within the kingdom. And so there is a context that maybe that person you have an issue with is maybe really not following the Lord and, and wouldn't consider this, themselves a Jesus follower. I still think even if it's somebody outside the kingdom, if you honor them with kingdom living, that's a testimony to them of the goodness of our Father. And to say, wow, even though I'm not a part of this little uh, uh, commune that you have here, you're gonna honor me as one of those. And you're gonna extend that love and grace and respect to me. I think that's good. But what do we do if we refuse? I think the better question is flip it. Because all of us are gonna find ourselves as the other brother. If we're gonna be real and honest with each other, we, we tend to say, well, I'm the brother that always goes to ask for forgiveness and to seek reconciliation. And that might be true. And it behooves us as followers of Jesus to be the ones that take the first step and not wait and be like, no, 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 they wronged me. They can come to me. If they want to forgiveness, if they want to work this thing out, they know where to find me. That's not kingdom living. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, that means we take the first step. And your next step might be taking the first step in seeking reconciliation with that person. But very few times are we going to say, you know what, I really am the other brother. And I offend a lot of people and I hurt a lot of people. But let's look at it from that side. Because if we refuse to go and seek forgiveness, or if we refuse to even give forgiveness when approached by an individual, approached by a small group, take two or three, or even the church, what we're really doing is removing ourselves from the fellowship and from the unity of the body of Christ. And so when Jesus is saying, you know, if that happens, you go to the church and, and there's no response, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's not a threat. It's not like, oh yeah, and here's the last card that you get to play is to kick them out. No, no, no. The goal is not to exclude someone. The goal is always to keep together, to keep unity it's almost like this is the last ditch effort. We don't want to come to that point, but you've already had pretty much three interactions with someone about whatever issue it is. The goal is always reconciliation and restoration. The goal isn't like, all right, I'm going to address it. I'm going to give you three times, and if not, kicking you right out, buddy. You know, I, I really don't want to start that ministry here. Oh, I'm on the worship team. I'm on the kick them out of the church team. Wow, what do you do? If they cross us more than three times and they don't want to seek forgiveness, we throw them out on the highway. 
Nah, I don't think that's the church. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. So the goal is always reconciliation. And there really is something about the fellowship and the unity of the body. I used to tell students, and, and, and even for us today, it's the same. That our friendships within the body of Christ should be at a deeper level. You know, yeah, we'll have friends that are outside of the body of Christ, and that's good, and that's okay. And see those as opportunities, and those are platforms for us to be kingdom citizens and to show grace and mercy. But within the fellowship, these friendships should be the closest in our life. Where they're not centered just around, you know, same activities. We're like, oh, I I like this person because we go running together. Or I like this person because we have this in common. But the commonality that we have is that we're all forgiven in Christ. That the relationship should go deeper because I'll pray for you. And I want you to pray for me. And that takes it to a deeper level where my friends that do not follow Jesus, they're probably not going to pray for me. They try to like mask it a little bit and they do those like, hey, sending good vibes. We get that sometimes. I don't know what that means. Sending good vibes. Am I looking for an email? Is that a text message? Like where do you get good vibes from? And so that's kind of how the world tries to mimic this. No, I'm praying for you. Because good vibes is me just thinking positive about you. But when we pray for each other, we're interceding on behalf of one another to the creator. And there's a little bit difference there. And so there's a fellowship and there's a unity that we should have. Are we going to wrong each other at times? Absolutely. Are we going to get irritated with each other at times? Absolutely. Don't you get irritated with your biological family or the family in which you live? Sure. We're not immune to it as a church family, but there really is something about the fellowship and the unity of the body of Christ that we cannot fully live out our calling as a follower of Jesus by ourselves. We can't just show up, get the download of the sermon, and walk out and never interact, never have accountability, never encourage one another. That is a stunted version of faith when we try to live for Jesus by ourselves. We are not getting the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus if we don't have the fellowship of the body. And so this fellowship of the body of Christ, it's important for three reasons. Verse 18 If I would sum it up, it's important because it reflects the reality of kingdom living. He's saying whatever you bind on earth, bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, loosen in heaven. And I think it's more of a a flip to it that whatever is bound and loosed on heaven, we should be a reflection of that. Whatever is important to God in heaven, it should be important to us here. Or whatever is not important shouldn't be that important to us that we really are a reflection of this kingdom reality, that when they see us in our fellowship and the unity that we have, it is a reflection of the kingdom. Verse 19, it reveals the symphony of the unity of the kingdom. And so if you look at verse 19, it says, if two of you agree, that word agree is the same kind of word that we get the word symphony from. Where it's not just melody, where we're all singing exactly note for note, and we have to be perfectly aligned and cookie-cuttered and... No, no, no. We don't need melody. We need harmony. And with harmony, that's where we have a symphony. Where there's different instruments, they're playing different notes, 
but it fits so well. Some of you non-musicians are probably thinking, I have no idea what you mean whatsoever. Is the, is the acoustic plugged in? I know one chord, okay, so don't, uh, uh, don't be throwing quarters at me. Right. So uh, non-symphony, non-harmony, where it sounds off. Doesn't that just sound horrible? I'm playing notes, but different notes in the same harmony. Now that sounds good. Now that, ooh, that, uh, we don't want to be a church like that. It's just awkward, it hurts. Some of you musicians are just like dying right now that I'm, it just hurts. Small change, I'm just moving a fret, moving one half step. And so sometimes even in our lives, we just need to move one small half step and then we will have harmony with one another. And sometimes we're the ones that need to step and into the harmony and it's not trying to get everybody else to change to meet us. And so as we have this fellowship, it reveals a symphony of the unity of the kingdom. Different notes, different instruments, but we get to play one beautiful song. Jesus. We get to speak and sing the grace and the mercy and the love and the truth that we have in Jesus Christ. That is our symphony. And then verse 20, the fellowship of the body of Christ is so important because it recognizes the presence of the king in his kingdom. That wherever we gather together, wherever we are reflecting this kingdom living, where we have a symphony of unity in this fellowship, the king is with us. And I love that. That's unlike any other kingdom. You might, like with Rome, you might live in that kingdom, but you might rarely, if ever, see the king. Like we live in the United States. I've never seen the president. We're not talking about one or desire to see the president. I'm just saying I've never had the opportunity to see a sitting president. Came close to it, but then my flight got canceled. I was gonna watch one of my students graduate from the Air Force Academy in Colorado, and the standing president at the time was gonna give the closing speech, and then my flight got canceled. I thought, regardless if I voted for the guy or not, I would wanna see that. But in our kingdom, in his kingdom, where we gather together and we reflect heaven, where we have the symphony of unity, we have the presence of Jesus with us. And so he gives this, hey, what do we do when we're wronged? And here's the other part, the forgiveness of it. Peter kind of jumps in, he says, well, you know, because he knew the rabbis at the time, they taught that if you, you, you can forgive someone up to three times, and after that, they're on their own. Whatever they get from that, like if you've went to them three times about an issue, and you have sought forgiveness, you've sought reconciliation, and they say no, you just done. And so Peter walks up and he says, hey, I kind of know this whole like, and so he's trying to sound really holy and righteous, like we're taught three times. I mean, should we do it up to seven maybe? You know, he like doubles it and gives the extra little baker's dozen to it to sound really good. And Jesus, I love Jesus. Oh, Peter, you're so cute. Seven times? No, no, no. And in the Greek, it's truly 70 times seven. 
So you're probably thinking, okay, 490 times. I've probably forgiven my parents, 489, and they're on the ledge right now. They get one more, and then I'm kicking them off the, no. What Jesus is saying with this parable, he wants to explain this unexpected forgiveness, meaning it's limitless. How many times should I forgive someone when they wrong me? How many times do you wanna be forgiven when you wrong others? You wanna be forgiven every time, every other time? You want them to forgive you about five times and that's it? Like, even if it is 490, I burned through that in the first three months of marriage. I'm holding records, okay? <laughs> I set the record. No, we should have a limitless forgiveness for one another in the body. And this is unexpected, this is hard. Rabbis taught three, Peter's throwing out a seven, Jesus says no, let it be limitless. And he gives this parable of a king and some servants. And this first servant owed the king 10,000 talents. And so talent, it's a Hebrew uh, measurement. It's actually not like count out a number of talents, it's actually a measurement, it's 75 pounds of either gold or silver. And so this servant owed 75 pounds times 10,000. That's how much weight of gold or silver that he owed the king. And it is an, an impossible debt. If you did the exchange rates and all that and da, 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 da today, we're talking in the billions of dollars. And we're not even addressing who gives out a billion dollars worth of loan. Like, have that guy call me. We got some ideas for some ministry here, and we could use a couple talents. But it's an impossible debt with an impossible promise. And when we hear this servant, Jesus is saying, I will, I will pay everything. No, you won't. <laughs> if you haven't even made a dent on 10,000 talents, it's not going to happen. And so this servant, he begged for patience. Just give me time, and I'll make it right. But the king out of compassion, gave forgiveness. And sometimes we do the same thing to Jesus. We truly ask for patience when we really need forgiveness. We go to the king and say, Lord, just give me time to get my life right. If you just give me a little bit of time, I'll work through all of this, I'll pull myself out of this sin, I'll quit looking at that stuff, I'll quit taking those things, I'll quit acting like that, just give me time, just be patient with me, Lord. When we really need to be saying is, Lord, forgive me. I don't need time, I need your forgiveness. We need to seek the king, not patience to pay our debt. What we truly need is forgiveness. And so this other servant who owed the first servant, he walks up to the first servant, cleared of all of his debt, out of compassion of the king, clears his debt, right? And then that servant found another one that owed him money, but it's only 100 denarii. And denarii, is, it's a Roman money. Right, so had to do some exchange rate, move it from Hebrew over, get it to, you know, went from a talent, then there's a, a, a mina, and then there's a shekel, and then the shekel, there's about uh, 2.96 uh, shekels per, or 2.69 denarii per shekel, well, all this. So I do the math, and if we're going to get it on the same dollar, the first servant owed over 88 million denarii, and he was wiped clean of his debt. And then he found 
some little lowlife that owed him a hundred denarii. So imagine you just got cleared of $88 million of debt, and then you found somebody that owed you a hundred. Kind of give it in, not a hundred million, a hundred. Like 99, a hundred denarii, and that is it. So absolutely different debts, but we hear the same plea. Have patience, and I will pay everything. A hundred denarii compared to 88 million? Yeah, you, you probably could pay that. That is a payable debt at that time. That's not too out of the context of being able to manage that kind of debt. So we have the different debt, same plea, but with a different response. Verse 30 says that the, the first servant that was forgiven much, he refused. And what is so telling about that is that the king's heart of forgiveness that compassion, the pity that he had to forgive the first servant, that heart of forgiveness never changed the heart of the forgiven servants. And may it never be with us that we're that servant where we have been forgiven so much by the blood of Jesus on that cross. And we have been given so much. We have, we've been given the righteousness of Christ. Like, look at the deal that we have been given. Jesus says, I will take all of your pain, all of your sin, all of that punishment, and I will give you my righteousness. So that when God looks at you, and because you have your faith in me, he's not going to see any of your past, present, or future sin. Let that sink in. And some of us haven't finished sinning because we're still alive. But he's paid for that on the cross. And that when God looks at us because of our faith in Jesus, he doesn't see past, present, future sins. He sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That he sees us as if we never sinned before. Let that heart of forgiveness, the king's heart of forgiveness, change our hearts as the forgiven. And so that when we have these little skirmishes on a horizontal level, knowing that we've been forgiven vertically, should that not be our motivation to forgive others next to us? Because it's hard, and we're going to be honest with ourselves. We want forgiveness. Like, we want forgiveness. We want that from the Lord. But if we're going to be really transparent, there are times we refuse to forgive others. And so we always need to see us extending forgiveness to others or accepting forgiveness from others in light of the forgiveness that we've been given from the king. That his heart should always touch our lives. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Even back in Micah 6.8, you know, oh man, what is good, what he requires of us to do justice, to seek mercy, and to walk, like we talked about last week, humbly with your God. The king desires mercy. And so our experience with the king should change our response in his kingdom. The forgiveness that we receive from him, it's the very forgiveness that we extend to others. And then Jesus throws that line at the end. It's not in lip service. Just like what he told Samuel when he was trying to find the next king after Saul. We look at the outward, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
that we might walk into these family functions this week and we'll put on our smiley face and, oh, it's so good to see you and hug. But then in deep down inside, we're thinking, I just hope you choke on a piece of ham. I hope you get coal for Christmas. I hope you get a paper cut from the wrapping paper. The Lord looks at our hearts. And so in closing, if you have your Bibles, go to Colossians 3. Paul says, put on then, Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. If you're a follower of Christ, you are his chosen. Put on as God's chosen ones. We are holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts. There's that mercy. There's that forgiveness. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness in patience, bearing with one another, like we talked about. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's our goal. Because when there's reconciliation, when there's restoration in the kingdom, it's a beautiful harmony. That's what I loved about worship this morning. I had no idea that we were doing more of a stripped down set, and I like it because I hear the harmony of voices together. Where I can hear some female voices, I hear some male voices, I hear some older voices, I hear some younger voices but in perfect harmony. And that should be not just a representation, that should be us as this kingdom, this unexpected forgiveness. When we live with that kind of earthly reality of this kingdom living, it's gonna be a beautiful harmony that I think our world really wants to hear. And they might not even know it yet, but they can make a massive impact that that sound would draw people in, not push them away. I wanna be a part of that kind of harmony. I want that kind of fellowship. I want that kind of unity. What is that? That's the body of Christ. So you guys never get in trouble? You never tick each other off? The harmony is more important to us than the melody. And so we forgive each other. We seek forgiveness. We give forgiveness. Only a few times, all the time. Why? Because the same unexpected forgiveness that we have been given, we are called to show to one another. So Father, we love you. We are nothing without the forgiveness that you have shown us, without the mercy that you have extended, without the grace that you have showered over us, without the love that you have protected us. And I pray your hearts would impact ours. That no matter the issue, the circumstance, no matter the person or the offense, we would be a people of unexpected forgiveness. 
and that we would sing in harmony this beautiful song of grace. So give us that kind of faith, Lord, as we continue to celebrate you coming to this earth. Give us opportunities to keep celebrating you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.